Chris, you have a you have a South African accent? I've seen my wife actually is a I met my wife. Oh, really? I was actually in it. My one else summer. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so I actually, I actually ran, I did a huge panel here yeah. in October of 1993. Yeah. Uh, I did it myself. It was actually funny. I knew the team. Yeah. Very well. yeah. Actually, it actually was a minor point. I learned it on the public speech. It was a summer yeah. slide. It actually was like a warm one. It actually took my experience. So no, I just sort of fly. So I'm trying to figure out where I was going to go. I was going to pastry in there. It's like, like a run on that. Forgot how much free food there is. <laughs> there, yeah, I know. Yeah, Did you it's see like that? Yeah. You can walk around campus and always get a free always meal. Eat. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Not sure it's worth the 50 grand a year in tuition, <laughs> but... Uh, There's other things that come with it. No, I, had a, I, had, I remember my, my one out here, I was having lunch with um, Professor Rakoff. Yeah, sure. And I was like, I was like, why is school so expensive? Like, I don't feel like I'm getting my, my money's worth. And he's like, he's like, we spend more money on you guys than you guys pay. And like, he cited the free coffee <laughs> as like an example. And I was like, this is, this is fucked. This is not, that is not like. That's the establishment talking. No, that was one of Kagan's big innovations was, free coffee. was the free coffee. Yeah. All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Glad you made it through the rain and yeah. made it through the a little event switcheroos that we had for you. But um, we're so happy that you guys made it today. Just a couple of brief announcements. One, um, on Friday, we're hosting the Algorithms Law and Society event on Building Rights for a Digital Era. Uh, it starts at 9 a.m. It'll be across the street, Wasserstein Hall, room 3016. Um, for That's more information about, about that event, feel free to visit our website at cyber.harvard.edu slash events. And you get a list of all the events that are coming up. Um, as always, just want to remind you that this event is being live webcast um, for posterity. So be mindful of what you decide to ask or not ask. And I'll let Chris Babis take it away. I'll just say really quickly, we're thrilled to have 
Raj Goyal and Ari Shadati here today to speak to us about one of my favorite topics, which is how, in some ways, the law profession has been among the slowest to embrace technology and the power, the disruptive power of technology is finally coming to bear on this uh, profession that's been the same for, for quite some time. Raj, a uh, startup called Vodala, a previous uh, career uh, in Kansas House of Representatives, among many other things, <laughs> Ari now with BuzzFeed, two HLS grads who I think can introduce themselves, maybe talk a little bit about who they are and how they got to do what they do. We, they'll speak for a while. We'll have plenty of time for questions and discussion. We'll keep it going till 1 or one fifteen or so, whenever people want to wrap it up. And without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Great. Yes, Chris. Um, I'll start. Please. All right. Well, afternoon. My name's Raj, and this is my sidekick, Ari. I am a sidekick. Uh, and uh, I... I'm like his intern, and so this is the, this is the first of our road shows. I'm, I'm the court jester. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. it's the first of our road shows. We hope of uh, many more, but we really uh, want to big shout out to Chris. Thank you. He, you know, he got an email, I think through Dean Minow, or uh, that we were emailing and connecting, and it's pretty remarkable that in you know few weeks you guys move fast and quick and uh, set this up. So we really appreciate it, Dan. Thanks for the logistical help in the back, and more importantly, thanks to all of you. Uh, we were joking on the cab ride over, like we assumed it would just be us and 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 Chris. Uh, we can talk yeah. to each other. For <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We, we do. We are good friends, so that is useful. And uh, I made mention before the the puff pastries. I think are the, the real reason you're here. I mean, you know, I tried at Logan to get one Munchkin at the ubiquitous Dunkin' Donuts. They won't do that anymore. So even if you try to offer a, a quarter over, they try to sell them <laughs> ten at once. So. We'll have to disrupt that model at some point. Um, but we really are excited to do this, and I think, as Chris mentioned, we'll, I'll give you a little bit of background on me um, and sort of, and then run through sort of my, uh, let's say, kind of stump speech here. Ari has some incredibly insightful views on the political situation uh, in our country, which uh, I think all of us probably have views on, but I've spent a fair amount of my career in the political system, still very involved in that, so I will be inevitably like a tractor beam drawn into that discussion. But I also want to make sure that, as Chris mentioned, we get on the table the topic of why you're here and the ideas um, uh, that, you know, that we raised in the description of this event. So uh, I, we were talking before, I'm from the Midwest, I'm from a state called Kansas, you fly over it on your way to Napa uh, or um, or wherever we go. Um, I and my parents are doctors uh, from India. They kind of came over. If you if you know, there's a fair amount of Indian American physicians in any small town, mid large town, whatever. So I was raised there. I ended up going to Duke uh, for college. Um, and uh, if you haven't noticed, we're we were preseason number one. We may get our sixth title this year, but who's counting? You know, so uh, I don't know if you like you. Sports has become a refuge since the election, so uh, uh, so I, we are following that closely. I came straight to law school, and now, uh, shockingly, uh, 20 years ago, 19 years ago, uh, I came here to the law school, and I would say on campus uh, I was. You know, fairly good student, I guess, but I was more a diversity and public interest sort of warrior, you could say. So I was one of six students out of our class of uh, 600 who didn't work at a firm the second year of summer. And now remember also, context is everything. This is the summer of 1999 when the market was the frothiest and white hot. Um, you know, you, you literally could just email any firm and say, oh, I'd like to come, and they would fly you out, and, you know, things were going well. Cell phones, uh, we, you know, I was on campus when the internet was invented, so um, 
you know, the summer, that summer we came back and everyone had a cell phone. So this was the rapid uh, kind of like uh, all the trinkets were coming out. Um, so then I went, I clerked for a bit. Uh, then I got a Skadden Fellowship where I worked at the ACLU in a civil rights shop. And then I moved into politics. So I was one of the early employees of the Center for American Progress. I worked for John Podesta there. And then I had the, uh, the gall or the... Um, I don't know what you would call it, but I moved back to Wichita. My parents were still there, and I became the first South Asian, Asian-American elected in Kansas history. I defeated a three-term Republican incumbent and ran a pretty interesting campaign in 06. Uh, it was probably the largest state house win for the Democrats in the country that year. It was in this little tiny you know, district in Wichita. And then I ended up, uh, I was very involved in the Obama-Hillary campaign in 08, and then in 2010 I ran for Congress. Uh, and um, we uh, got beat badly. And uh, the gentleman who defeated me is now the uh, designee to run the CIA. So um, elections have consequences. Uh, and, and I hope for our country's sake that uh, Mike does a good job. And so um, I then moved to New York where my wife uh, was a partner at White & Case. Uh, and she's now a partner at Proskauer. So, uh, which I'm going to get into because we, uh, the uh, the institution of the big law firm is obviously something that you need to be much more aware of. And I'm going to go on a limb that you're uh, you're you're not very aware of what's happening in the industry and the profession, and you need to be more aware of it. Uh, and so. I then worked in philanthropy. I ran a family office, did some, uh, and did a lot of political work. Um, and we, and then I started both all about three years ago with my colleague, a dear friend of mine from law school, actually, who's HLS 99, uh, Kathan Javeri. And so we've been at this for several years. We're proud to have Ari as an investor. And so um, I could tell you more about the company. We'll do that in discussion, but I'd like to more frame some. Uh, discussion points as to why we're doing this and also really some macro points that really have nothing to do with the company but of course inform it and so one is that um, the state of the legal profession of legal education and of the industry is badly badly fucked and and you would never know this walking around this campus and in fact I would say that everyone here um, almost everyone here is is almost has blinders on as to actually what's happening in the world of the law um, and so and it's interesting because to be at Harvard Law School as we were you're the, we're the incumbents and we're part of the status quo I mean there's you know in fact I have an incredible young um, uh, college kid I'm mentoring out of New York who was in 20 foster homes and uh, it was an incredible story and you know he, saw, he shot me a note the other day his dream is to go to Harvard Law School he wants you know he has accomplished and overcome more barriers than most of us would ever dream of uh, and his dream is to go to Harvard Law School so there is a mythic place that this institution represents not only in our culture uh, but certainly in the profession and so it is good to raise these issues I think here because one might think that this institution or institutions on par of the caliber, what, what have you, the, these are the elite adjectives that, that, that we elites use, um, you know, people uh, who think like us should be raising questions of innovation and disruption and change, and yet this is the exact opposite place for any of those things to occur. So Chris mentioned it, I think, diplomatically, as is his role, that says, oh, this is a profession that has been slow on innovation. Slow on innovation? I mean, the last thing that was innovative in the law was the Magna Carta. I mean, you know, th this is an industry and a profession, and you would all, many of you are too young to know this, law firms initially resisted email. Okay, there are, this is very clearly documented that the partners at main, 
line law firm said, our clients will not handle the, the trusted documents over electronic mail. We must have our runners and our couriers, you know, go to the courthouse and do these things. So th the notion of burying one's head in the sand is almost an insult to sand uh, when, it, when it comes to actually how this profession is, is sclerotic. Um, and so now, and so the question becomes, so the diagnosis, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about before turning it over to Ari, uh, is easy. Diagnoses are generally easier than prognosis, obviously. Uh, but it, is, it would stretch credulity to think, that a, that a profession can stand alone and isolated and not be and not have change come to it uh, the way that it's happened to every other profession. So ask a banker, ask someone in healthcare, Chris, we were, you know, think about your wife talking about an HIV AIDS researcher. Think about the market forces that his wife is going through and the, the economics of healthcare. For, forget even Obamacare about international research, pharmaceuticals. I mean, you know, and so, you know, one thing I'll say, I mean, I'm a proud New Yorker now. Um, you know, the safest investment in New York for decades, it was like gold, was a taxi medallion. If you wanted to make money, you got yourself in a, and it was actually it was actually a cartel, um, and it was a clubby group of people who were on paper at least billionaires. Uh, I don't know would any of you invest in a taxi medallion right now? And that's in a short few years. Of course, Uber is the leading disruptor there, but it's even bigger than that. So disruption inevitably must come. My parents were fee for service, uh, uh, mom and pop clinical docs in Kansas. They had a pretty good life in the '80s. Um, slowly managed care came um, and then of course now they were completely squeezed out of being solo private practice physicians and now of course uh, you know I don't know if any of you are either involved in the healthcare profession or a family you know the, you essentially can't be a solo private practice physician anymore and so change happens to industries Think about banking. There are cyclical forces. If, you know, again, we live in New York, so we know a lot of people in the finance community. So when the recession hits and the crisis happens, they contract. And then there's fights over, over you know, there are market forces at play. Yet there seems to be almost no market forces that are at play in our profession, in your profession, and this industry. So in the, in the slice of the world that Bodala sits in, we are creating market, uh, helping create a marketplace for when you hire people like my wife. So right now, so that's a word of mouth business. It's functionally a no bid contract to a good to a friend of yours who overbills you. That is what the that is what and for the students in the room, most of you are going to be doing um, in some way in some sh uh, you know sh shape or other over the next. Despite the fact that you're going to want to do something different, the numbers don't lie. I think it's about seventy percent of you will end up in these firms, um, and so. You really can sum up the status of the legal system if you were a Martian coming from outer space to say, look at this great country that is, in a, you know, uh, and Ari is going to get to this uh, in the future of the country, but how remarkable this country is, you would say, look at what, all the things we've done. But if you look at the legal system, you would say, what the hell is going on here? So let me give you six words. Uh, again, I came out of politics. We don't do PowerPoints. We, we talk. So it's poor, sucks, middle feared or, or scared, rich, obnoxious. What do those six words mean? The poor get no legal services at all. 
And don't tell me about pro bono services that you think will greenwash your conscience when you're on Wall Street at these firms. With the 40 hours a year that the law firms uh, yeah, I mean, people do? Not, I thought that really solves all the problems. Yeah, it solves all the Not to mention, you know, filing habeas petitions on death penalty cases, really important work. But, you know, it's fact that you can, like, sit there and, you know, there's law students and lawyers. You can always get another memo. You can always footnote another citation. So, you know, that may make you feel good. Are we being responsive to the problems that actually the needy and our community uh, have? I don't think so. I ran a small family foundation. We gave micro grants to true grassroots organizations that needed legal help. They didn't know what the hell a Skadden Arps is, not to, go, not to mention going through the gauntlet of the bureaucracy of getting approved to be a client of one of these firms. Um, you know, and, and so the fact of the matter is, and I don't know how many of you have been to a legal aid office. I was in the legal aid bureau. I'm always proud when I walked into this building. But, you know, I was in the Kansas legislature. We funded the Kansas Legal Services Agency or or, uh, you know, it was a line on in the budget. It was pennies on the dollar. Go to a legal aid office outside of a coastal elite city of the five elite cities of this country. You will be shocked. You will see 200 case files. Uh, paper cuts, and you will see an absolute yawning need, not even remotely being met by what we are, by the profession we're in. If you're a middle class, if you're in the middle class, you are scared the hell out of lawyers. Get them away from me. That means a divorce, an accident, something bad happened. They're expensive. That is a net loss uh, of something, you know, in the transactions I'm involved in. And if you're wealthy, um, you know, my wife's rack rate is $1,050 an hour. Now, I wish she was paid $1,050 an hour, but she's also she's compensated well. But there is clearly, and this is the reason we're in business, a overhang and the fact that there isn't a marketplace that actually is getting to a market-tested price. When you get to a market-tested price in any other market, say transportation, obviously there's attempts to do that in healthcare, you will see a rapid uh, and significant decrease in the price of even elite legal services. So this legal system is not serving our country well. It's certainly not serving our people well. And legal education has a big role in that. Think about what's happening in legal education. 204 law schools, I believe that's the number, all aping the Harvard model. There is still, I mean, the vast majority of these courses could be on YouTube, as you know. Um, and so with the dis the innovation in legal education, I strain to find any true innovation. Um, so maybe you have some clinical programs here or there. I think, and I'm not just saying this to uh, to, to praise uh, our hosts here. I think I was here when the Berkman Center was was birthed by Charlie Nesson and John Zittrain, who were my torts professors. It's an amazing institution that is on the forefront of doing things that are innovative in its area of the law. So it's in a swim lane. In fact, I proposed a topic for Chris, actually, about uh, legal operations. And he nicely said, hey, look, I, it's very interesting, but it's really not our ambit. We are innovating in this space. Ari is deeply expert in that space, um, technology, policy, and the law, and so on. Good. You know, that's, that's a substantive area. Of, of innovation, but you know, frankly, that is really not where uh, it's certainly not where the it's not affecting the profession and uh, and certainly legal education. Uh, I'll just close by saying um, that you know the modern law firm is a very interesting institution, uh, and that you know there are increasing articles. You might have seen that there's mergers of law firms and so on. So there is a great article by the great progressive jurist William Rehnquist. 
1987. That was a joke. Uh, and so, you know, at the time... a while. Huh? Exactly. Right, right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. He was on the Supreme Court. Uh, and so William Rehnquist wrote in 1987, he said, the modern law firm, some of which approximate 300 lawyers, okay, Keep in mind the largest law firm in the world right now has 3,000 lawyers. And some of them have billing requirements of 2,000 hours per year. Keep in mind my wife, when she's a third-year Deborah voice, billed 3,300 hours that year. That's the reason she's a partner. Um, so not a Deborah voice, but at, at another firm. And that these pressures on the profession will raise severe ethical quandaries. Because who among us has the courage ethically to talk to a client and say no to an actual matter or a decision that will actually cost me revenue. I mean, how often do you all, or do we, I mean, you know, none of us is Gandhi, how many of us do things that are against our economic interest? As a pretty rare thing, please take money out of my pocket, I'd like to give it to you. It's not something that actually happens very often. So the, the structures and these ethical quandaries for what's happening out there are actually far more profound than I think people really realize. And let me just say one final thing is about diversity. I did mention that I did a lot of diversity work when I was on campus. So I suspect that if you took a, a, a survey of the student body here, 95% of you would say something like diversity is an important lived value. I want to be involved in institutions that value diversity. Uh, diversity, I want to live in a, in a diverse environment that, that tolerates and in fact encourages a diversity of viewpoints by gender, by socioeconomic class, by race, of course. <clears throat> the law is the least diverse profession, white-collar profession, in the country by a country mile. It's not even close. So what happens is, and here's the data, the New York City Bar, I mean, there's umpteen reports on this. Go to an organization called LCLD. They have all these convenings on this. Uh, the New York City Bar just did a big report that said, in the first year of class, you get fairly representative examples of women and racial minorities who comprise the associate ranks. By the time the partner ranks come, it plummets precipitously. As we were joking, Indian Americans, for example, I think have done fairly well. They do run Google, um, small little startup. Um, you know, there is an African-American president. Uh, we just almost elected, and she won more votes than the other guy, uh, a female nominee for president. Um, I think that every other profession has seen incredible diversity. I don't think there's something inherent about the law that's too hard for us. I don't, I don't really think that structurally blue booking is beyond the capacity of the Asian-American uh, brain. Uh, or females or others, um, I think there's actually something more structurally screwed in how the in how the in how the institutions are actually moving along. And so when they come to recruit you, of course, it's glossy and there's pro bono and and there's um, you know of course there's probably really nice photos of a diverse place. Look at the data. You're really smart. You can do this uh, and ask these questions. So, sorry. No, no, Go please. Ahead. Go ahead, Art. I, I, yes. uh, there's so much there to to, yes. to, to work off of. I, I think my, my pitch for this room is going to, I would have talked about something completely different three weeks ago, but, um, you know, I was giving some thought to, to my own career as, as a lawyer. Um, so I used to be an engineer um, and was a general counsel of Tumblr for four and a half years. And, and when I was a Tumblr, we did a lot of work on net neutrality. Um, which hopefully is a, an important thing for the people in this room because, uh, you know, people at HLS have been working on it for a long time. Um, and now suddenly, you know, it's, it's all going to go away. 
And I was thinking about sort of what has my guiding light been in my career, and did I learn any of that when I was here? Um, and and I concluded no. And the, the guiding light for me has been sort of a, an unerring moral compass. So there's a lot of talk um, here at, when you're a student about legal ethics, um, but there's almost no talk about sort of the morality of what you're doing as a lawyer, like whether or not you're actually helping people. Um, whether or not sort of the, the core tenets of, of your career and the work for your clients is actually making things better. Um, and I think there, there's a strange sort of sense among lawyers that you're taught, like every client deserves representation. So, you know, you're, you're sort of taught this like amorality that I think is, is, is pretty harmful. So when I started out as a lawyer, I was a patent litigator. Um, and how many people know a lot about the patent system in this country? I'm assuming, yeah, it's, it's, it's a disaster. Um, and I felt that I was sort of immorally contributing to the system by being a cog in the machine. Uh, so I went and became a corporate lawyer, didn't feel like I was helping people that way either, and sort of have, have made these moves to, to sort of be a moral person. And that in turn has, has made my work to me at least like really relevant. And I think that's something that you are not taught at the school. Um, you're not taught at any law school. It's sort of antithetical to, to law practice, in fact. And now we are at a political moment where that actually is one of the most important things for lawyers because from everything I know, lawyers are the, the tools and weapons of the establishment to use against the polity. Like the lawyers are going to be the ones who sort of implement uh, Donald Trump's pronouncement today that he wants to strip citizenship from anyone who burns a flag. I mean, he literally said this today. Uh, which is hilarious, makes I guess. Makes perfect sense. Uh, totally, totally makes sense if you're if you're an authoritarian. Right. Um, and and so my my pitch is is for this school and and the people here and for lawyers to really start thinking about themselves as moral actors in the universe and not just um, amoral tools of their clients. And the, my advice to, to everybody is like find your issue, right? So for me, it was net neutrality, and I was like. Okay, like we're gonna hammer the hell out of this net neutrality issue. Like we're gonna, we, we literally had a meeting with Tom Wheeler where where I, my boss David Karp, who's founder of Tumblr and the CEOs of a bunch of New York City tech startups, got in a room with Wheeler and just yelled at him for an hour about not doing Title II, um, and it helped. I mean, it really, it really did help. Um, and it's such an odd thing now that that an administrative agency with a Democratic president that was fully independent and supposedly insulated from political pressure, had to get beat up by a bunch of New York City tech startups to do the right thing. Um, but but that was it was in that kind of work that I, as a lawyer, like sort of found meaning and, and thought I was doing good and helping people. And so my pitch is really for for you guys to recast yourselves rather than like, oh, I'm going to go through this like law firm churn model, which, by the way, is this increasingly irrelevant. I mean, I, I was a general counsel for four and a half years, like the service from large law firms sucks. The costs are too high. I was doing most of the work myself. Um, I mean, if you actually look and sit at the work that you're doing, like it's not really that hard. Like some random dude off the street could really do this work. Like, like I was sort of illegally practicing law before I got here, um, and it was really funny. Like, like the first day, uh, Dean Kagan, who's now in Supreme Court, gave this speech to everybody. And it, I found it the most offensive speech that I've heard in a really long time. And, and it was like, you've all arrived. You're all now at Harvard. Nothing will ever be wrong in your lives again. I mean, I, like I'm, par I'm paraphrasing, but not. Um, you'll always have a job. Everything's great. Just relax. 
And I was, I was like already working at a law firm and I'm like, she is entirely full of shit. Like that's not actually how it works. And the beauty of it was like things cratered. So I graduated in 08, things cratered in 09 and suddenly HLS students like can't find jobs either. Um, so you guys are inculcated by this school into this sort of establishment ideology and way of thinking about your profession in the world that I, I think we don't really have a lot of time to fuck around with that stuff anymore, given what's happening in the government. Um, and so my, my call to action is for you guys to think a little bit differently. But please, I mean, we have half an hour to talk about stuff, so. You see the former elected goes five times longer than the, uh, you, I mean, but you pack, I, you can but, talk but you pack more content. That, that's I, you know, one thing I just actually, off what you said, I realized that I hadn't asked this rhetorical question, but I think it keys off exactly what you said, which is, I suspect, I don't know who the dean of Harvard Medical School is, um, but I suspect he or she is probably asked every 10 minutes, what's the future of American healthcare like? Tell me what are the structural drivers? What are the institutions going to look like? Who's going to be served? What what are the who are the who are the winners and the losers? The pros and the cons? What are the market forces at play? Sure, there's research, and and I I you know I think Dean Minow is is a is about as lovely a person as I know and thinks hard about these questions, but she's not actually demanded to answer these questions. I know she does it because she's an interesting, thoughtful person, but it's not actually in her job. Uh, in fact, and what people want to focus on is if you take the healthcare example, well, you, of course, just like the Berkman Center, needs to do its thing. It needs to innovate and, you know, understand net neutrality. And, you know, if, if I had, if I was in your shoes and somebody as expert as Ari came in and talked about Title II, I mean, he, you know, Ari Shadavi moved, moved a mountain. I mean, he helped play a pivotal role in, in protecting and saving the Internet. I mean, these are not in small, inconsequential things. For less things. than a year. But, For, yeah. but elections have consequences. <laughs> but, the, but the point being that we, those questions, we need, so the dean of Harvard Medical School needs to make sure that the unit devoted to mitochondrial research to find the gene that can prevent diabetes, that's super, super important. You don't spend all day thinking the macro thoughts, but you have to do these things in parallel. And so there is an entire... Uh, system in the law that's not being activated of asking those deep core questions of what does the law look like? Why is it structured like this? You know, the president had the audacity to suggest a third year of law school is unnecessary. Of course, some might throw shade on the first and second years too. Uh, and the establishment carved him up, you know, and he actually kind of retreated from it. How dare you, you know, change the, and, and why are there three years of law school? Because it's a business. Do you know that law schools were profit centers for the universities? The deans of law schools had juice because they were profitable for the mothership. Now that's far less so because the number of law school applications are dropping. Law schools are going to close. Markets actually can work. But there are reasons for this. It's not just because the 11th commandment, you know, when Moses came back was, oh, actually, look, law school's six semesters and you got to follow the Langdellian method. I mean, you know, that's really... It's not inscribed anywhere. Except that third year is really useless, though, man. Like, yes, like, I, a, well. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting through three L year, and I'm like, this, this is completely a waste of my time, except for like one class, which was, which was great. But like, but I, I mean, I think I've challenged every law school sort of professor that I've had, and no one actually has a good answer as to why the third year exists, except for the extra 50k plus in revenue in the, in the school's yeah. pocket. Like, like there's literally no reason for it. Like, they should just send you out to a law firm to do an apprenticeship or something. Like, yeah. Well, we've, uh, yeah, please. Rocks, tomatoes, please. You guys have talked a lot about think of oneself as a moral actor in all these various scenarios. Uh, I wonder if you could 
talk a little bit more about both the ethics of being a moral actor. Uh, in some scenarios, you could imagine trying to be a moral actor is, uh, is complicated, say, someone in the, in the military, um, yep. uh, as well as the economic forces around being a moral actor. You mentioned you had a long career, but only sort of felt satisfied for one year of it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a good set of interrelated questions. I mean, I, I have a bunch of friends now who are at the U.S. Attorney's Office um, in SDNY, which is sort of the premier U.S. Attorney's Office in the country, and they're all, like, struggling with this question because they're like, do I stay and have Jeff Sessions as the Attorney General and try to do my job in sort of the best way possible and help people with two hands handcuffed behind my back, basically, or do I leave because I'm not, I don't, won't agree with the Attorney General's priorities and the people that he's going to put in charge of the office. Um, and that's just, just not, there's never an answer to that question, right? For, for me, it was just like, am I going to work every day feeling bad about what I'm doing or not? I mean, it's very like gut level, emotional, like, like, am I waking up and do I feel good about what I'm doing? And do I think that I'm helping people? And that was it. And that has just always been my compass. And at the moment where I'm like, I don't really think I'm helping people anymore, I go do something else. Like, and the way that dovetails economics is like, you're going to have to roll the dice on stuff that you didn't think you'd have to roll the dice on. Like, as lawyers, you are trained to be risk averse. Like, that is, which is, which is also the wrong way to train lawyers, but that's a separate conversation. And your training starts when you're here, when they funnel you into these, like, law firm application processes at law firms that are just faceless, mindless places that will generally abuse you for five years before you get sick of it and leave. And you only actually know that. You've actually had people come to campus like us, I'm sure, before and tell you like they're all terrible and your economic incentives are tilted towards going down that path because you're all in so much debt. Um, so for me, like this is not advice that's replicable, but I was like, okay, I'm working at this law firm. I know I don't like it. I'm going to plow all my money into paying my loans off so I can go do something else. So my, uh, like, I gave myself the freedom to get out by paying my loans down so aggressively that I could go and like, I literally, I was like a fifth year litigation associate. I demoted myself to a first year corporate associate just to switch out of litigation because being a litigator traps you into being a litigator forever, which is another piece of advice I'll give you. Like if you're going to litigation and you're not sure about it, like think really hard and probably don't do it. <laughs> um, but it, I, I think like for me, it's been a lot of like following my, my conscience and my gut over making like super hyper logical choices because then I would just fall into the trap of like all the structures here sort of funnel me down this path that I know will lead me to doing things I don't like that don't help people that will sort of not be the best thing. And I have to like resist that. Mm -hmm. I'll just say quickly two points, which is, you know, individual morals are obviously individual and I, maybe I'm being a little more libertarian on that, which is I don't judge other people's decisions. I, I made judgments every day. I made 1,600 votes on the Kansas House floor. Um, you know, I never served in the military, but as you mentioned, I'm sure people in combat have to make ethical decisions you make in the business, you make in the boardroom and so on. Um, and so, you know, I personally with my career path, I should, you know, maybe I should have then become a strategic consultant or a lobbyist and made a great deal of money. Instead, I plowed right into a startup. So I'm just sort of a natural entrepreneur in the political sense, philanthropic now in the business sense. So that's just me, but I don't, I would certainly never impose that on anyone else. I, I'm more focused, as you can tell by the tenor of my remarks, on structural 
immorality, which is that this is a profession and an industry that is structurally has deep moral questions that people should ask. And so as Ari was very eloquently describing about, you know, the questions he's faced, it's because the structures are not serving you well. And so therefore, you know, none of us has the moral backbone of Mandela or Gandhi. These are very rare people out of the 10 billion on, on the globe. You know, there's a handful of people who are so strong and so focused and so smart that they can see the promised land and know where to go. I'm not like that. And so structures that are moral in their, in, in their integrity and in their genetic code help guide us toward moral decisions. And so right now, as you know, we're, we're, what I would say, and I, you mentioned the law firm model, ask some deep questions about the future of that law firm model, by the way. So as you, I think, sort of mentioned, that may not be re replicable what you did. My wife did that. She paid off her loans in seven years. You know, the, there is an argument out there that the big law model is going towards something called the death spiral. So there is something called profits per partner, and again, they shield you from this because they talk about the summer outing and they talk about pro bono and whatever other, you know, and it's a nice thing at the Charles Hotel that they take you to and maybe there's a dinner and I've hosted a lot of those cocktails. I get it. But the reality is that the metric at a law firm, just like Harvard Law School's metric is what? The U.S. News and World Report ranking. Now, Harvard's probably ex ex uh, uh, got a brand that can maybe exempt itself from that. But the only metric that matters to the industry, you must understand this, of the AMLA 200 firms is PPP called Profit Partner. That is the only, that is the North Star of what they think about. And if you ever get any deleveraging of one of these firms, so Bodala might provide that or many of these other innovations, if you have general counsels who get it like Ari, you will see their model is built on leverage. And when you get that leverage model, it, it actually can collapse on itself. And what are you seeing right now? Firms that have been around for years going out of business, mega mergers. We now often synergies are found in mergers. Let's see how this turns out. So these are questions you should be asking because even your default path may not even be there. And you're going to be saddled up with this debt. And there may not be in 10 years, five years, who knows, this easy gilded path to even pay this stuff off. So... Well, I mean, you know, one thing to point out, like law firms really don't make a lot of partners anymore. So, so they, they sort of offer you this path like, oh no, stay here for seven years. No, we're going to extend it to 11. Uh, and then you'll be partner. And it's like, no, it doesn't happen that way because you have this log jam of sort of like 45, 50 plus year old partners who are taking all the profits that when they add a partner, PPP goes down. So they don't actually even make partners anymore. So you're trapped in this weird limbo of being like a, a service partner or a junior partner or something where you don't actually have equity in the business and they just kind of con you and string you along for like forever. And that's going to keep, that's those economic forces are going to keep getting worse no matter how anyone disrupts anything. It's just like, it's, it's just sort of a population issue that they can't make more partners and they don't want to share the, the ones who are there don't want to share the wealth. Um, so that's the other thing. Like if you're assuming that you're going to become Monica my wife, sorry. Uh, it's yeah. it's highly unlikely, if if not almost impossible at this point. Um, um, the the fundamental problem is, you know, the the perverse incentive of the billable hour, and that's been identified for literally, you know, for decades. Yep. You know, since the 1980s. Sure. Anyway, Rehnquist. Yep. Um, and the death of the billable hour has been predicted ever since the 90s. 
Um, is there any reason to think that this time <laughs> there may be a change? I mean, that's a that's a fun one because so when I was when I was a Tumblr, I either did all my own work or I tried to do fixed fee arrangements. Um, and and for me, but, but macro. I mean, are we yeah. are we seeing any possible? I, I don't, you know, I, I, I was going to use my example as a way to sort of introduce the fact that the billable hour is not going away if only because like there's a certain caliber of lawyer who will never go on fixed fee. So like, so I, I did all my own work except I was willing to pay for like really good people and they would never agree to fixed fee. They always bill by the hour. Um, and I, I could never like wean them off of that. And right. so like fixed fee, I think. Like non billable hour work, I think for the sort of lower to middle end of the market is like accepted now in in some reasonable sense. But when you're getting to like sort of the what I would call the high end, like the really expensive stuff, like they won't they won't ever like they just won't take you as a client. There's not enough money for that. Yeah, and obviously this is what we do, and so one you know an argument, and of course the answer is unknown, but you raise a great question, which is even the chair of uh, a major law firm, White and Case, has said, look, the billable hour is dead. But obviously, he's got a $2 billion corporation that's built on the billable hours. So I would say this, which is getting a car before Uber, um, you could do it, right? Uber didn't invent the car, didn't invent the black car, nor did it what, – what you had to do, at least in New York, was you had to call a really rude dispatcher, and then you'd wait, and then it would be – the friction was so high that you wouldn't do it. So what is Uber at its core? It's just a geolocator – interface on your phone which reduces the friction of getting a car or it doesn't own anything it doesn't own the driver doesn't own the car it owns no assets it's just a marketplace where all you're doing is using your phone to eliminate friction in this pre-uber world to get the car so the analogy here is and this is certainly something that we're doing at bodala and let's see how it goes which is if the friction of so ari's friction was too high to eliminate the billable hour in certain arrangements but if it actually you have functional free-flowing marketplace where actually that that friction is reduced such that the client can get it we do think that we're going to see much more rapid adoption of fixed fee arrangements and what really should happen are entrepreneurial arrangements right which is actually some skin in the game where if things go well or, you know, bankers, uh, if you've heard of broken deals, when, the, you know, bankers, I have one of my best friends in Milwaukee, he's a healthcare banker, he works a year on a deal and it busts, he doesn't like take a vacation that year because that's, that's the way a market works. He didn't, he didn't, the deal didn't get consummated. Well, you know, lawyers insist on getting paid and, you know, even when the deals go bust. Um, and so the I, Short answer is we don't know, but there are a lot of different models, and we're certainly working I, I on I guess that. my yeah. my question to Ari is: Was it friction that was causing you to pay up, you know, two thousand dollars an hour for a partner at a big firm, or was it fear? Less friction than I think. Sort of I the, mean, the fear because it seems to me that you know. Well, I'll, what 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 people are able to the reason people can't be moved off the billable hour is because they know that at the end of the day, people are worried about some huge uncertainty and they're willing to pay up big time to well, I'll give reduce you, it. I'll give you an example. So uh, my, my now friend, but formerly uh, someone I hired, Dave Kramer, who's a partner at Wilson Cincini. He's, he's, as far as I'm concerned, the best copyright lawyer in the country and also just a great guy. So, so he does not bill on a fixed fee. And, and I would I just use him. I would just like call him up. Right? I'd be like, hey, Dave, like, need some help with something. Um, 
And so, so that to me, it was, it wasn't fear so much as like, that was worth my money, I guess. And so I think there's that segment of the market where you have people like Monica who are kind of worth the money to the people that are paying them. And maybe there's some underlying sort of fear or something that's, that's driving it. But I don't see that segment ever going away as sort of an hourly service. I think everything else is commoditizable. So like, if you think about the work that I was doing day to day at Tumblr, I was like writing vendor contracts, um, dealing with inbound people for threatening to sue us, um, you know, any, like dozens of things like that. All of that is commoditizable. You could get a kid off the street to do the work I was doing just as well for one one hundredth the cost of someone who is trained by Harvard Law School. Like, like being a lawyer is not that special, and like the protectionism of the ABA and the right. cartels has sort of made it extremely difficult for people to become a lawyer. But like that work is commoditizable and is getting commoditized. I think like calling up a Dave Kramer is something that like will always sort of have an hourly fee attached to it. Because like I, he's his his yeah. knowledge and and his sort of instincts are not something that you can just like have someone off the street sort of do. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, I was wondering at what level is the problem because as somebody just uh, coming into this country, mm. you get shocked by the irony of the freedom versus the fences around the freedom. For example, just walking down the street. Yeah, uh, sometimes I count uh, within like one kilometer, I count maybe 10 or 16 uh, little posters telling you what you can do within that area. You can pack your car between this time, this time. <laughs> you can, you know? Yeah, right. so, no walking on the grass. No walking on the grass. <laughs> At this point, you, you must leash your dog. <laughs> At this point, you can unleash your dog, you know, and so on and so yeah. forth. So right. I keep wondering. What would be the, the the cost of because in my view um, such a regulated country everything is regulated so if I was coming to start whatever business it is whether it's uh, philanthropic whether it's commercial I would certainly need the services of somebody whose day-to-day uh, -day job is just to understand yep. all the little fences that that's uh, are there within the freedom to to do the business? So there probably is a dog leashing lawyer in Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that's enough to make a business on it. Yeah. yeah. So at what level is the problem? Is it um, that the legal system is so complex and so written that you also need an expert yes. in the system to to help you uh, in your life? And then um, the second question would be then what will disrupt um, this kind of very closed and uh, protectionist uh, kind of um, legal system? I, you know, if, if you trusted Donald Trump, he wanted to sort of drain that swamp, right? So, so the idea being that, like, we live under, how many people in the room have taken admin law here at HLS? So if you have not, if you're a student here and you have not, you should. It was probably the most useful class I took here. Um, and you come out of that understanding your observation is correct. Like the, the U.S. actually is is sort of a giant administrative apparatus, and there's rules and regulations for everything. And, and lawyers built the apparatus, and so it's a full employment act for lawyers. So like, you need a lawyer to understand all the crap that the lawyers wrote that that you don't um, understand. And so so if, if you sort of took Mr. Trump at his word, he was going to drain the swamp, which to some extent means like deregulating a bunch of the stuff and 
Um, you know, I, I think that's a problem that has been identified for many, many years. To the extent it is a problem, because as you learn in admin law, there's like a cost-benefit analysis to all these, these regulations, and sometimes the, the benefit outweighs the cost. Um, and so, you know, I, I, would, I would see that, to, to me today, that's a state and local focus issue. I think Democrats in particular are focused way too much on, on the federal level um, to the abandonment of state and local politics. So a lot of the things you talk about are like even starting a company, that's a state level issue in large part. Um, and so I think the people in this room, for example, could have a lot of impact on sort of figuring out what the, what the right laws and regulations are at a state level away from the federal government. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, like it's a it's yeah. a very complicated like set of questions. I would only add to the protectionism of the profession point. You mentioned the ABA and so on. It, it it is something that needs to be again. People just assume walking around this campus that it's like the eleventh commandment. Oh right, the ABA runs these things, and oh right, this is the way it should be regulated. There's an interesting right left convergence happening on this issue of regulation. So it's mostly thought of as like the yoga teacher stuff. So this is incumbent protection. So, you know, I actually, I, I had a constituent when I was in the ledge, you know, he owned a beauty salon, he owned a hair salon, and he said, why do I need 200 hours to have some bureaucrat in Topeka tell me, you know, I own an Aveda salon, I'm, I'm well-trained, and Aveda salons are nice, you know, they do the scalp massage. And so, you know, and, and, and they have mint in their products. And so, I, you know, and, it, and it, it opened my eyes. I was like, oh, I just assumed that that was a thoughtful regulation. Why, why is that licensing board there? And, you know, the yoga example has been the one where it actually stifles entrepreneurship, to your point, because you have to go through all these regulatory burdens. And so the, the actual regulation of how you become a lawyer, what Ari mentioned, how lawyers function, deeply perverse. Um, and I think there is, you know, there is a, there's a slight issue that probably was never discussed on this campus that should have been, which is the fact that non-lawyers can't own a law firm. And the ABA did a commission yep. on this. It almost got through. You know, the ABA actually is a legislature. It's called the House of Delegates, um, and uh, which is fascinating. And so there is actually in the UK, they now allow non-lawyers to own law firms. So private equity models and investors are moving into this. And so, you know, there is innovation and there must be vastly more in how we even set up the services that, that we do. So how would you break the ABA, though? Like, what is... Um, I don't, the problem with the yeah. ABA is they have their hands in the pockets of every politician. So you, you can't, for example, get tort reform, which is badly needed, passed at the federal level because they, they just kill it, usually with the Democrats. But like, I, yeah. I actually don't even know how to sort of break that cartel. Well, it depends on what the issue is, you know, on ownership, that sort of – I mean, it's not actually – well, it's so far in this country has, thought of been, has been thought of positively to have white-collar professions regulate themselves medicine, um, you know, and, and the law. Now, I think that regulation has been badly, badly done. I mean, there are thousands of bad doctors who should not have a medical license, thousands of bad lawyers who should not have a legal law, a law license. So um, we'll leave it to another time to figure out how, you know, the ABA, actually I'm not super uh, in the weeds of the ABA, but I do think it's an emerging consensus that this that this all-knowing colossus that sits in Chicago with their fancy building is probably not treating, is not serving our country as well as it should. I know we have 10 minutes left, so I'm sure we'll yeah. shorten our answers. My fault. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was wondering um, how the profession is going to deal with um, what I see as a demand-supply mismatch in the sense that there are people that can't get lawyers 
and there are lawyers that can't get jobs. Like firms won't hire them, they won't train them, and then you have people that are just like, "Sorry, I like can't afford the lawyer or whatever." Yeah, well, let me take a quick no, right at this one. Yeah, it's an awesome question, perfectly positioned, which is that's the point I was making about kind of structural immorality here. So you put your finger on it exactly, which is I th there was an article by David Siegel in the Times a few years ago. I don't know if you read in the Sunday Times. He's the haggler. He runs these this little column about consumer uh, complaints. But he wrote this great piece. I may get some of these details wrong, but Tennessee, if anyone's from Tennessee, I believe you don't have to go to an accredited law school to sit for the bar getting back to another regulation that's actually just incumbency protection. So, you know, wh why can't you sit for the bar exam? I mean, who, who says? So the ABS, the blessed, you know, and so on. So, um, but in Tennessee, there's a local school. And those folks, you know, they have like $30,000 in debt. They're local prosecutors. They're local public defenders. To Ari's point, they're awesome lawyers. They're just as good as you are. They're just as good as we are, even though they didn't go to a fancy school. And so that's a marketplace that's functional because the, the debt loads are proper, the costs are right, the, the payoff and income for that person is right. So there are structural imbalances that you nail, which is these big law firms are, are obviously super, they're the personification of elitism, um, where you, only, you don't even get a look if you go to a certain law school, even if you're really talented and so on. So I would say that the combination of legal education and this concentration of the big law firms are, are ending up with the results that you just mentioned. So I believe in other countries, and I'm not as expert on this as I should be, there are levels of lawyers, um, say in the UK, for example. So it's not just this one you know, monolithic example of this $150,000 of six semesters that could all be on YouTube. I mean, that, I mean, like, you, one has to ask yourself, what is this model? I mean, is this serving anybody well? We've already known, our, you know, our view, is it serving you well? I mean, you're, a lot of you are students. Ask yourself that. I mean, and so that, I would say, it starts at the very beginning of the pipeline, which is the legal education model is fucked and it's fucking the profession. I mean, I, one, one example of, of the, the point you just raised, so Brooklyn Law School, the students of Brooklyn Law School actually sued Brooklyn Law School a few years ago for lying about employment statistics, which all law schools do, actually. Bad. They claim they claim full employment at high salary levels, and it's just, it's actually just a bold faced lie. And so they actually <laughs> and half sued. of them are at Starbucks. Uh, yeah, and so they, they so they sued Brooklyn Law School for doing this. And so one thing I've noticed because I live in Brooklyn and I've noticed students at a Brooklyn Law School can't find jobs. They actually are hustling to go and find clients. They they go, they pass a bar, they they hustle and go and find clients on their own. So they're solving the the mismatch issue by actually like being entrepreneurial because they don't have a choice. Um, so I see that as, as sort of something that, that hopefully helps alleviate the problem a little bit because they're, they're now in a community where like startups are cool and like starting your own thing is cool. The problem is that they're not very good because they haven't been trained. And so they're training themselves on the dime of their like, you know, clients who can't really pay that much money. And so there's this weird gap where they're like doing bad work for a while until they figure it out. And I don't know how to fix that, but um, to your point, I think it's a huge problem that, that students are actually trying to fix themselves. And I haven't wanted to shill for my company during this, but we aim to solve that. So that's one, that's one possible solution. So. But can I just ask, so is it, are these like, uh, do you hear this anywhere? I mean, we, we made a bunch of assertions that you don't hear this on campus from... Thank with you. no evidence. From, yeah, with, with no evidence. So 
feel free to tell us that you're getting this in every other public speech and uh, you're, you're bored into submission. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been you, here in eight years, so, yeah, maybe, so maybe like they're being honest. Yeah, please. I, I'd love to get some feedback on whether or not you think we're completely just uh, – you know, arrogant schmucks, or if you think uh, this is uh, this is truth telling. Those are needs... not mutually exclusive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't get my wife started on that one. But yeah, you had your hand. Yeah, uh, I'm just all here. Great. Uh, I think we do hear this fairly regularly, um, and it's something kind of on the back of our minds. I mean, I think uh, uh, most of us still end up going to work for a firm, and there's there's a couple factors at play here where. You know, in the last few weeks after the election, there's been a lot of talk like, okay, what do we do now? How do we kind of get into action? How do I change my life path? Everybody wants to go work for the ACLU. The ACLU hires like one person yeah, a year. Um, uh, there's just not, there, there aren't that many options in our mind for, um, and whether or not they exist or not, in our minds, it's like, there's not really many paths that we can, can go Can I ask down. you a question? Yeah. So when you say you hear this, can you a little bit more like, what do you hear about the law firms are under economic duress, or do you hear that there's structural problems in the entire profession and so on? I'm sort of It's a lot more of the structural stuff, um, structural problems, uh, um, yeah, I, I think a number of uh, uh, speakers will come through and kind of tell us that. Few people kind of offer solutions or give the guidance. So, so basically, it's like we're, we're left with, oh crap, this profession is is uh, you know fucked, as you say. Yeah. We're not going to tell you what to do though, or how to fix it, or uh, or you know you're graduating in, in a year and you have to make your job decision two years before you graduate. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to help you out there, though. Like, uh, well, the, well, you know what the problem? Yeah. Like, the the problem there is, <clears throat> there isn't much we can tell you, right? And I thought it was interesting that that everyone's like, oh, we'll go work for the ACLU because the thought process is, I'm going to go try to apply for a job somewhere that I know that they're hiring, versus like, I'm going to actually think about like just opting out of this whole mess and think like like one of my one of my friends who graduated uh, my year went to work for McKinsey, and she then went to work for a VC and like now runs her own small, she started like three small businesses and like that's what she's been doing. And so like you're, you have the privilege being here that your HLS degree actually gives you credibility doing like 3000 different other things that are not and do not involve you going to take the bar exam at all. And maybe they won't pay as much at first, but they might actually be more rewarding and like, like you might like them better. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is one that I always like kind of shove people toward as like a bucket, but like put that aside. So I think the school itself is sort of like putting you on these guardrails of like, oh, I have to apply to one of these like kind of like handful of things that everyone else is applying to. Like your HLS degree actually gives you, you can go and do a whole lot of other stuff that other people can't. Um, and whether or not you're actually qualified to do those things, it doesn't matter. You have Harvard on your resume um, and, and Harvard, uh, you know, while, while being the home of white nationalist Steve Bannon also is the home of like a lot of business leaders down the world. Uh, and so like, I would, I would just encourage you guys, like, I can't tell you what to do because I just did a bunch of random shit and kind of got to where I am and I'm still not in a stable place. So yeah. like it, it and yeah, you know, I, I would echo that. Too, I, mean, I mean, I would actually push back a little bit. I don't, I don't think it's an obligation of somebody to tell you what to do. I mean, like, I thought the notion was you, you're a really thoughtful guy and you got in here, like, figure it out. I mean, we're, I'm 20 years older than you and I'm still figuring it out. And I've had five careers. I've run a foundation. I've 
served as a politician. I've written. I now started a company. And like nobody. Yeah, neither know, of us has had like a stable. Company, yeah, exactly. Right? Like exactly. So and 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 and, and as our. And, right now right people are telling you essentially like here are the two options you work at a firm right. or you work in public interest and we're here to say there are many other options right right right, right. and I, and and i think that's what's missing is sure is really you don't see uh, uh, many other people kind of either come to law school <laughs> or you know the career services are there to put you in a law right. in the guardrails. Yeah, yeah um, don't go to career services. Yeah, <laughs> and the other thing is, not I, I need to say one point about public interest because I love Alexa to death and Judy, and I was, you know, as a Scadden fellow. I mean, I've got the gold-plated public interest resume, and uh, already mentioned state-based work. I chair the board of the state uh, State Innovation Exchange, which is the progressive um, op organization fighting the right in state capitals. Would commend you to look at that if you're in politics. Stateinnovation.org. I did my plug there, uh, but it's an important one. Uh, you know, the, the, this public interest versus private sector uh, dialectic is also really a not a very interesting one. And, and I say that from the belly of the beast. I mean, you, I, as I said, I didn't work at a law firm. I was Harvard Legal Aid Bureau. I was a Scadden Fellow. There's nothing more like, you know, put put the put the soft liberal line on me it would apply on in that in that sense but it's really not that dynamic and i get it i was at like my kids parents cocktail the day after the election this guy goes oh man i'm so pissed i just dropped five grand to the aclu I was like, well, there's a warrior for justice, you know. I mean, like, wow, you know, uh, you know, you're to the streets, brother. I mean, so I, 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 I think that I think that you know, that, and, and I don't blame you at all because it's hard to envision these things, and and that's why you know Ari's career paths. I mean, really interesting. There's a lot of people who probably had those skills and interests, but weren't able to make the moves to kind of be there and help shape net neutrality and sell a company for a billion dollars to Yahoo. And these are interesting things. And so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we'll tell you what we're doing. I mean, I run a, I run a company and we've got 10 people and we hope to have a hundred people, uh, you know, in, in, at some point we'd love to talk to you. And so, you know, there are, and then of course, as you said, as I already said, there's so much that you can do that you should just match to what you're interested in. It took me a while and I even screwed on, I clerked why the hell did I clerk? I mean, look at me. Should Listen to what I say. Should I be reading memos? I mean, Jesus, it was like miserable. It was like being in the dentist chair every day. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? But, you know, and I did it. And I'm obviously no shrink and violet because I get it. You know, the guardrails are there. And so, you know, my wife and I now have an understanding. We've been together 17 years. Like, I'm the innovator and the entrepreneur and I'm the you know if it was like a stock portfolio she's the blue chip and, and and I'm the growth stock or 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 maybe the bomb stock you know let's see but that's our dynamic and we and we live a lifestyle that we're comfortable with that and we do that because I can't be happy you know I'm not I don't want to do those things and she doesn't want to do what I do so that's a long way of saying you know, you figure these things out. All we're doing here is to is pushing you to please ask these questions and think beyond the guardrails because the guardrails are not only changing rapidly, cue my business, but also we're raising moral questions about them as well. Yeah, so you had your hand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah then, yeah. So as a survivor of a big law associateship myself and um, someone who now works with HLS students, I'm wondering, sort of thinking about turning Adi's question to like a practical end, when you think about your early jobs out of law school, are there things that you are pleased that you took from them, lessons that you sort of can, could move forward with, whether it was a big law job or a clerkship or 
uh, a scouting fellowship. And then are also, are there things that you did inside of those organizations that you felt, you know, say the HLS student who's going to take a big law job, what should they, can they be doing inside of that large law firm that can help create change in the profession? What can they do for themselves? What can they do for the institution? I'll speak shortly and quickly because Ari is going to be much smarter on this than I am. Um, all I determined was I saw what bad management looked like, what good management looked like, and I realized that for me personally, I need to be around really good people. <laughs> And, um, and that's not always the case. And by the way, that's true in public interest shops, private sector shops, whatever. There's amazing managers and people at Goldman Sachs, and there's really crap people at the ACLU and other places, because that's humanity. So for, for my only lesson was that I realized that I, I knew what the parameters I needed to be fulfilled and happy and to be doing things that I found interesting. So it was more almost, I would say, a self-discovery. But then I also saw, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, suboptimal organizations out there and you know that I suppose I was a little naive uh, going into the workforce and but if, if you've been out any time you realize that the world the default order of the world is suboptimal and inefficient not the other way around no I, I think I think Roger's totally right like like the, the thing that I got out of working in a law firm was that I didn't really want to be a lawyer and so that was that 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 self-discovery only comes when you actually sit down and have to do legal work around a bunch of other lawyers for several years and you realize like lawyers are miserable people like this this thing I'm doing is terrible uh, I don't want to do this anymore and then you start building a conception of yourself outside of like the thing so I so I actually think it's valuable to go and do the big law thing if only to know that it's not right for you or to discover that it is right for you and then Godspeed like you are yeah. one of the few people for whom it's going to be right for you, and maybe you'll be one of the few partners. Um, exactly. And otherwise, like, inside of those machines, I can't say that I learned any practical skills at all that, that sort of helped me with anything other than, than sort of just the self-discovery of knowing that it wasn't the right thing for me to do. Um, and even, like, you know, so I, I worked at Fish and Richardson for six years, which is, which is here in Boston. And literally, like, one person from there now still talks to me because they were so miffed when I left. And this is also, like, a lesson about lawyers. Like, they don't understand the value of relationships, usually, particularly at law firms. And so, like, yeah, they should have been, like, totally, like, greasing the wheels with me because I, like, had my own legal budget and might have hired them for something. And now never again will I do so. Uh, because, you know, sort of typical, like, lawyer pettiness. But. I, I do have to comment on that. It is amazing. I mean, I've now been to 250 corporate legal departments, and it is amazing what it, the perception of the business world about the legal world. Lawyers will think after a while, oh, yeah, I know business. Yeah, I advise CEOs all the time. Lawyers are not good business people. They are, like, just full stop. There can be, and there's a small slice of CEOs who came out of general counsel jobs, a, a diminishing one. Um, and so as a general rule, you're not really an executive. You know, you're not making decisions. You're kind of saying on the one hand or the other and so on. And so the, the, there should be, there are, not only is the legal profession lacking business principles because there's no markets and there's no accountability and it's kind of like, you know, the basic rule is just bill as much as you can. That's what's rewarded at a law firm. But they're actually, what Aria said before, it actually then functionally makes you not a great business person uh, in terms of management, in terms of executive decision-making, in terms of, like, project management, I would say. I mean, actually, like, like to, yeah. to the point, just, just to say one more thing, staying longer, actually, like, going for a little bit, I think, is great. I, I would advise students, like, get out fast, though, because the longer you stay, the more you're, you're inculcated into a, set, a culture and a set of norms and a way of thinking that actually is actively harmful when you're in a business. 
um, it, you know, like one of my mentors, a law firm partner at, at Gunderson Detmer, where I used to work, like I'd always call him when I was a Tumblr, and I'd be like, hey, can you help me with this thing? And he he's like, he wouldn't ever actually like stick his neck out for me on anything. Like I had to stick my own neck out on stuff because he never viewed his job as sort of like sticking his neck out. And lawyers just don't, if you're yeah. in it long enough, you just don't do that. And you cannot succeed in business without sticking your neck out at exactly. some point. And it's, it's stuff like that, that if you're in that machine for too long, like you can't train yourself out of it. This is the last, uh, yeah. Great, thanks. Yeah. Hi, I'm Mary Gray. I'm a researcher at Microsoft Research, and I'm a professor at Indiana University. And I came in late. I apologize. Okay. I was so you didn't struck. miss a thing. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm going to hear how much Just I missed after the um, I was so struck by the advice to you that this is exactly what we're saying to graduate students. Like when you get a PhD, I don't think there's anything more insane than training somebody with yes. a PhD to think that they're only that are only qualified now to have a tenure track job. Yep. Like yeah. It's one of the most destructive things that's happening within higher education. Yeah. Yeah. So I hear this echoed in higher ed. I hear mm. this echoed mm. in journalism. Mm. So places that had professions and had very professional sensibilities and identities that now can exist if they're willing to shift to more <coughs> of an um, independent contractor model. Sure. So I, I study contract labor. I'm wondering what yep. are your yes. thoughts on the, uh, I'll call it the democratization of legal assistance. Yeah. of being able to have folks who have training and legal expertise being available right. on on demand, on contract, yeah. through services, so you're not working with a law firm, it's your gig. What do you think about uh, look, that? Look, it's obviously an awesome set of points there, and I love the examples that I haven't thought about journalism and so on. I, I was a journalist, as you can tell. I've had many jobs. I was, I was a journalist, and, and, you know, things are changing rapidly, and it gets actually, it's a perfect way to kind of end where we began, which is this is a, you know, completely non-innovative profession. So in other professions, they think about, okay, we have to reinvent ourselves. You know, it's like, you know, Madonna reinvents herself every five years, you know, but, you know, the, the law prides itself on stability. And so that's really, I mean, you know, my dad's a cardiologist. This is the golden age of cardiology. If cardiologists had simply said, we understand how to treat an infarction, I mean, the innovation in, the, in cardiology, like, it'll make you cry. Like, we keep people alive now. Like, Franklin Roosevelt died of blood pressure problems. It's sad to think about it. Now it's like a little pill. I mean, that's what innovation is like, and, and it's exciting. You know, it actually can mean that, you know, these PhDs, I mean, they're out doing amazing things. I mean, my dear friend who runs Axiom Law in New York, she's, I think, the number three person there, she's a PhD in paleontology from Yale. Okay, that, that was not in the job description that Axiom issued. We want PhD in dinosaurs. Um, but you're right, the innovation and, and, of course, this empowerment you get from coming with good degrees can be, can be very, you know, very helpful in that process. And the last thing I'll just say about the, the marketplace you mentioned, that, again, to your question, is, is our model. I mean, we envision a world, um, and, you know, maybe there's degrees that, that, uh, that will exist or not. We're actually in the free-flowing marketplace, a truly free-flowing marketplace. You should have spot markets for legal services. So, f for example, we're always asked, well, Raj Bodala will, uh, we did an IPO for the lowest price. You know, our client saved a million dollars on choice of IPO counsel. And that wasn't going to some, you know, uh, Dewey Cheatham and Howe and Piscataway that was making, uh, you know, uh, Wilkie Farr compete against Skadden and so on. And because that's how much fat there is. We saved a million dollars for our client. And people will say, oh, so is that the lowest price? It's not a race to the bottom. In a pure market, actually, let's say three years from now, it's a frothy market. The price of that IPO should go up. 
you know, that's what a true marketplace actually func functions like. It is not just about a race to the bottom or reverse auction. So we do envision a world, and by the way, it's not just on the, it's also on the pro bono side, where, you know, I, and we've talked about a lot, but I just needed to say this, which is, it's, a, it, it's everything I've said about the, the private sector, of, of course, applies, but it's a tragedy what happens on pro bono procurement. Use the word procurement to a pro bono lawyer, and they'll be like, what are you from, like, you know, what, what do you work at Goldman Sachs? No, it, it, the hiring of a counsel is procurement, and right now it is sad that there are so much, uh, there's so much capacity to your question that isn't even getting to the need because we don't have a frictionless marketplace to match. So you made great examples about where there's matching going on in other industries. That is part of our vision is to create a matching uh, platform where you can actually get, you know, need to, to talent. No, it's, it, it really is price and information discovery and transparency. And, like, there's no place for that right now for lawyers. And the, the cartelization of the law and the fact that you have to be licensed on a state-by-state -state basis makes it worse. Yeah. Because New York has a ton of out-of-work lawyers because everyone goes to New York, takes a New York bar. Um, if it was easier for them to go to, like, Tennessee or, or other states, the, they, I, you know, I actually, like, encourage people to get licensed in places that are not New York City because it's, like, not... Like, you know, the scadens of the world are there, but it's not like may, may not be the best place for them if they really want to be a lawyer and help people and um, have a career. And so that that makes it difficult. But I was going to say, like the, the platform that that um, Raj and his team are building, like is attempting to sort of help sort of connect the dots. And there aren't really a lot of those or I mean, there aren't really a lot of people even working that problem, working that problem right now. Thanks, Raj. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. Guys. Yeah, right. I'm going to book it to the airport. Yeah, we're all right. Yeah.